podcast called uh, Dub Jellyson Podcast. He probably doesn't remember this at all. Yeah, we work together. It's easy. This is kind of real. I call it shit. And so it's really cool to get to be a part of that. Hey, you know how it is, bro. Hey, when you... You now tune into the biggest ever. We're not here just to take part. We're here to take over. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's crazy. What's up, everyone? We're back with episode 128 of the Dub Chelsea Podcast. Today, a very special guest, Mr. Jerry Palm. Jerry, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I know we had, we had chatted for a little bit, and then we, we got to meet up at the Purdue IU game where we saw Purdue absolutely wax the Hoosiers, so that was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> for people who may not know you or – I mean, a lot of people do, especially, especially my fans, um, a lot of them being Purdue guys, but – um, for people who may not be familiar with you, talk a little bit about um, what you do and um, how that relates to sports media. Yeah, it's I have a weird gig. Uh, nobody really has my gig. Uh, I do uh, college football bowl projections and uh, bracket projections in college basketball for CBSSports.com. And there are people who do each of those things, but I don't know that there's anybody who does both. And I do some other traditional writing as well every once in a while, but those are my primary jobs. And it's kind of a weird gig. You know, it's not the kind of thing that I grew up wanting to do because when I was growing up, those weren't things. Mm -hmm. Um, The RPI didn't exist until my senior year at Purdue. And, uh, and I didn't discover it until 1994. So, you know, it's just, it's just this kind of thing that developed. Uh, I thought I'd be a computer programmer, systems analyst or manager all my life. Uh, and then I ended up uh, getting downsized at the right time. And uh, in, in this hobby of mine of doing uh, really at that time, primarily bracket uh, projections and then turned it into a job. And now I work for CBS uh, doing this sort of work. And, you know, it's it's really a kind of a dream come true because all of my passions uh, for, you know, the numbers uh, and the sports have combined into one job. Mm-hmm. I was looking at your, I was doing a little research the other day, uh, getting ready for this. And I mean, your career path has been kind of crazy, but it's awesome <laughs> to look at. Like you started in, um, you graduated from Purdue with a computer science degree. Right. And, and then you parlay, I mean, you were working for Bank of America. And then, yep. and then now look at you, you're in a completely different setting. Like you're, you're using some of those same skills, but it's just crazy to look at that that transition yeah it's you know it's funny because a few years ago uh the people at craner invited me to speak to uh, a class uh it's, it's part of the executive forum they have a guest speaker every week and the students have to you know come up with questions or whatever but it's um it was weird because tim newton asked me to be part of that and i'm thinking what am i going to tell these people you know what 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 my career path isn't exactly traditional and, I, and you look at the list of guests you've got like a CFO and a CEO and a director of IT and an aging hack sports writer. And, you know, it just didn't really fit. Although that was a blast. It's one of the most fun things I've done uh, on campus uh, as a result of this gig was getting to talk to that group. But, you know, my career path, you know, people say, well, you know, I want to be a journalist. What do I do? And I say, well, you start with a computer science degree. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you get from that? Uh, But I started tracking the RPI as a, as a tool to learn this new technology that I had back in 1994, which was a, a new computer and the Al Gore just invented the internet. And, you know, we had social media was just starting out. 
And I wanted to, and I had this new database program. So I wanted to, to try and learn how to do these things in a way that I thought would be fun. And the RPI had just changed their formula that year and it had become, at least to me, public knowledge. And so I went, I gathered all the data and I threw it together and I started sharing it on the internet and on news groups, which is the, you know, the caveman writing on the wall version of, of what we have now for message boards. Uh, and I thought nobody would care. And people started caring. And then somebody who covered Penn State in the one year in a generation that they were good uh, found what I was doing and, and he started talking to me and he likes me and he tells two friends, they tell two friends. And before you know it, everybody who covers college basketball at least knows who I am, uh, if not using me as a resource. And it was just weird. And I started doing bracket projections in 95, which I think was the year after Joe Lenardi started doing it at ESPN. Uh, and it was just the two of us forever. Uh, probably 10 to 15 years. And then it got to the point where everybody who had a computer and too much time on their hands, kind of like I did in 94, uh, it was starting to do bracket projections. So uh, it's, it's funny how it's all turned into a cottage industry now. And, uh, and Joe and I were in on the ground floor of it. And it's just, I would have never dreamed it. I could have not dreamed it. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly insane. Um, I don't know if, I mean, when you were a freshman and I told you that, that this would be your life and your career and, and everything like that. You probably would, you'd be like, ain't no way. There's no <laughs> way. <laughs> it didn't exist. Nothing existed in 1981 when I was a freshman. You know, it was just, you know, the, the internet didn't exist. So you're going to be publishing data on something called the internet. Well, the internet may have existed, but it was academic. You know, it wasn't really public use internet. And it was, uh, yeah, I would I could have never dreamed it. I would have loved it. You know, if you had told me that, it's like, all right, well, maybe I'll take some different classes. You know, maybe I'll do statistics and not computer science, or maybe I'll do both. You know, I was always a math guy uh, before I uh, majored in computer science. I was really good at math, but um, it was, uh, yeah, I would have never, nobody would have convinced me that such a thing was possible in 1981 or even 85 when I graduated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, like you said, the the internet really wasn't even a thing. And you've been through this this sports media thing for, I mean, a couple different phases of it, I guess. I mean, just in terms of, I mean, you just got in there during the, when the internet was getting popular and then obviously it's involved to now, like everybody has a damn podcast and, <laughs> and all these. Yeah, I don't actually have a podcast. You should. I, I probably you... should, but I haven't gotten around to it. I don't know why you don't. Uh, I don't know. I probably don't have the equipment to do one and but and i'd have to run it through work if i were to do one i'd have to go through cbs yeah i don't think i could do it on my own that's fair but i mean like how is this how has this thing grown and just the larger scope of sports media since since you got into it yeah it's it's really weird when i started doing bracket projections you know the internet like web pages weren't a thing so when i started gathering data in February of 1994 to try and put the RPI together. I had to go sit in the library and copy pages out of old sports sections with the scores on it so that I could hand enter them into my database. I actually still hand enter scores into my database, uh, mostly because it's part of my editing process. You can't always trust what you see on the internet. But um, the, so I, and then I shared that information. I didn't have a web page until the next year, 1995, when I was on America Online, AOL, and they gave users a one-page web page so that I could start posting RPI data 
and then eventually my bracket, which is, that was the first year I did it on my one page web page on AOL. And it was a couple of years later before I actually created a domain collegerpi.com uh, for the basketball stuff. And then, you know, the BCS started in 98. And so it was easy to adapt what I was doing for basketball into football. And I started covering that as well uh, and, and doing the BCS calculations and things like that. And it was, uh, uh, that was interesting. That got me my first TV exposure, actually, uh, football did, because in that first year, we had discovered, I discovered, that the, the people who made the formula changed it slightly in the middle of the season, and it looked like it might have benefited an SEC team to do so at that time, and the SEC office was running this. And so I shared that with my friend from, who covered Penn State, and he wrote a story about it. And the next thing you know, we're both on Sports Center, and, and so that was like my first big media exposure uh, was catching this change in the formula uh, in a way. I mean, you shouldn't be changing in the middle of the season regardless, but it seemed to benefit an SEC team as well. So I was not on anybody's Christmas card list, like Roy Kramer. Uh, I don't think I was on Roy Kramer's Christmas card list ever again. Um, but you know, so uh, eventually, I was able to take these in 2002 when I got downsized from uh, Bankzilla, they, uh, I decided to go with March 1st. So I went to the final four that year and I talked to all of these sports writers or as many as I could, this network that I built up since I started doing this and said, well, do you think I could, you know, sell subscriptions to my site and, you know, make money that way, make a living that way, perhaps. And uh, I was encouraged to give it a try. So in the end, so I started a subscription site and I think I'm one of the first people to make money in media on the internet, you know, other than porn, because porn does it, everything first and, yeah. and makes a ton of money at it. But, uh, you know, just regular sports media, I, I actually made enough uh, with a, a help from a little bit of a side gig to make a living doing this. And it was, it was great. You know, it was, uh, I had my summers off uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a weird gig in that regard. I, I work almost every day from Labor Day to, the end of basketball season. And then I get like almost three months off, but um, the uh, I was able to make some money at it that way. And then CBS, I started freelancing for CBS and USA today and the sporting news, uh, but CBS every year. And then finally in 2011, uh, after joking with them the year before that they should buy me out, they finally did. And so uh, I became a part of CBS then uh, and I've been working for them full time ever since. And it's just this weird career arc that I, never would have thought could happen, but working for CBS has been um, tremendous. Uh, they're great. Uh, understand what I do. Uh, let me do it uh, without too much interference. And, uh, and that's, and that's really been um, a great partnership for me. And I think for them. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, obviously it's worked out for both of you guys. Uh, that's one of the beautiful things about what you've been doing. Um, I mean, you do have pretty much free range to, to basically do whatever you want, um, do things your own way and not have that interference, which is always nice, especially in, in this field of sports media where it's kind of getting, I mean, media in general, that's kind of, I don't want to get political and all that stuff. So I don't even want to touch that, but uh, just like people trying to fit you into this one certain lane that you need to go down. And then, I mean, obviously you're doing a bunch of different things. Well, right. Um, and actually, I, I try when I can to get out of my box. Like, I'll help cover the NCAA tournament um, and, and do some 
writing there and, and uh, probably if, you know, COVID doesn't interfere, uh, probably go to the championship game for football and do a little bit there. Um, I've done some on camera stuff uh, at the NCAA tournament before post game interviews with coaches and things like that. So I'm starting to get outside my box a little bit and I really enjoy those opportunities as well. I mean, there are things that are hard for me to do at certain points of the season uh, because I, you know, I, I say I work every day between Labor Day and the end of basketball season, but some days it's 20 minutes and some days it's 20 hours. So, you know, it's really uh, sometimes a pretty intense schedule and it's hard to do other things at that time. But, uh, you know, this, this time of year, the December between championship Sunday and the start of the bowls, I actually get a little bit of a break. So that's nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, obviously, but um I mean, it, that's another beautiful thing about this is you parlayed something that, I mean, you just started as kind of like a hobby and then it's grown into all these different things. Like you mentioned, like being able to go to the final four and write about it and cover it and interview these awesome coaches and players that, um, that we love so much. I mean, what does that mean to you to be able to, to have that opportunity to do some of these things? Oh, it means a lot uh, because I get to expand my horizons and, you meet a lot of really good people. I mean, that are, you know, the, the bad people get all the publicity, but the good people are really good people in this sport. You know, the good coaches, the good players, uh, you know, we get to be around people like, um, uh, well, coach paint for one, who's really terrific. And I, what I really appreciate about coach painter as a, as a media person, but also as a fan is if you listen to him talk, you can learn a lot. Like I've learned a ton from listening to, to Coach Painter and Coach Katie before him and some of Coach Katie's contemporaries because they they felt more free to speak their mind you know, about the game in particular. You know, like at, at the Big Ten Media Day this year, somebody asked uh, Coach Painter about uh, playing Travion and Zach Eady together and what that would be like. And he gives a five minute answer and he talks about, you know, how it changes what they do offensively, how it changes what they do defensively, how teams would defend that. Uh, so he's already sort of self-scouted that. Now we haven't seen it yet this year, but you know, he's already thought it come through and gives a five minute answer about it. And other coaches don't do that. And in fact, somebody had tweeted out, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the person who did it. Um, it was Brady McCullough tweeted out that, you know, Coach Painter gives you more actual information in the answer to one question than most coaches will give you all year. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate getting to talk to these guys, and some of them it's off the record, but just getting to pick their brains a little bit to learn about the game and, and some of the subtleties in the game. That as somebody who's an observer and has watched for a very long time, uh, still I learn stuff all the time, but especially from people like Coach Painter, who I, I really appreciate for his willingness to share that information publicly with everybody it's really informative mm-hmm. i mean <clears throat> a guy like coach paint i mean he's he's got a phd in basketball i mean he could sit there and talk for five hours about about oh, the yeah. intricacies of the game and all i mean when i had him on the show i think i asked him like four or five questions and he just went off with it yeah uh, he, and he's great i mean yeah and that's one nice thing about all the interviews i hear with coach painter um I said, yeah, you ask him, if you ask him one good question, you know, you've got time to, you know, have a drink, listen in, you know, kick back a little bit. And then and he gives you very detailed answers. Uh, you know, like I said, I really appreciate uh, him sharing his knowledge that way. 
Uh, not very many coaches will do that. Uh, but yeah, he's got a lot of knowledge and, and he enjoys sharing it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know if that that's kind of changed with the, with kind of the focus of media in terms of wanting that like clickbait, the headline and things like that. I feel like coaches might not want to talk as much as they used to. Um, obviously I can't, I can't speak for that back in, back in the early days when I was, wasn't even aware of <laughs> basketball and stuff like that, but. Well, the, the thing is, like when Coach Katie and his generation of coaches would, they would tell you stuff, you know, because they weren't worried about offending people necessarily. They weren't worried about what context their, their information would be taken in uh, and, or, and social media wasn't around to jump on every little thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Katie, uh, Judd Heathcote, uh, Lou Henson, uh, Dr. Tom Davis at Iowa and Lute Olson before him and Bob Knight, when he was in a good mood, I mean, those were really informative guys. And you could learn a lot just by listening to them. And now uh, what you get from almost everybody is coach speak. You get answers that aren't really answers. They tell you what they want to tell you, regardless of what you want, what you ask. And they've been coached to do that, you know, and it's to try and minimize negative response as opposed to, you know, maximizing positive response. And coach painter is an old school coach when it comes to his dealings with the media. But the thing that the reason it works for him is that like, he'll call out players collectively and every once in a while individually, but the player heard it from him first. Right. So it's the player isn't reading something in the, in the golden black or hammer rails that, that he hasn't already heard from coach painter himself. And it's sort of, it's that honesty and that um, accountability to his players uh, that they appreciate. Uh, but it takes, you know, a certain kind of player then to play for him because you have to appreciate that because that's what you're going to get. Uh, but then, you know, when he says stuff in the press uh, that might be negative about his team, they've already heard it. Yeah. hundred percent. And I mean, yeah, there's no better example than that than when he went on Dan Dockage's show right after you No know, Joe Eastern and Matt Harms transferred. Oh yeah, yeah. Ripped I heard that one. Shred. Dan's interviews with Matt are, are must listen radio. Hundred percent. I mean that, that. I wish Paint would go on there more because I think I think Dockage just kind of fuels him, gives him a gives him some some uh, some alley oops, and Paint just runs with it like he <laughs> like he always does, but. Dan, Dan was a coach, of course, mm-hmm. so he knows how to interview coaches, and, yeah. uh, and especially Matt. Mm-hmm. Ace, I mean, I know Dockage is – I mean, he's a controversial guy sometimes yeah. and all that stuff. Polarizing, for sure. Mm-hmm. But, I mean – And I don't agree with everything he does or says, but I personally like him. And, yeah, you know, he's from the region where I live, um, and I've been on his show a few times when he was in Indianapolis. I run into him every once in a while down there. Um, but uh, so I've always, I always appreciated Dan, even if I don't 100% agree with everything he says and does. Yeah. He's a man. I, I, I really like him and appreciate what he does for the game. And especially when he's on big 10 games. Cause I mean, obviously yeah. Andrew grew up in, in Zionsville. So he knows, I mean, all the Indiana guys talks about right. them and obviously played at IU under Bob Knight. Right. When coached there for a little bit, um, I mean, he's just such a basketball mind, and I think it gets overshadowed by some of the dumb stuff he says sometimes. Well, and he's not calling games anymore, which I really miss because he was my favorite analyst, um, even though, again, he was polarizing as an analyst. 
but I always felt like I got good information from him and, uh, and honest information from him. So I, I don't, I don't mind that at all. Yeah. And another, um, I feel like I see a, a coach Nick Saban clip every other week about him just laying into something, getting all mad. But I mean, he's like that too. He's kind of like paint where he's, he's not afraid to, to speak his mind, especially like, uh, I think the last one was kind of coming to the defense of his players, which I, I really admire out of him. He's mm-hmm. always, he's always. Oh been- yeah. He was kind of sarcastic about it. Wasn't he? It, was, it had to do with the Georgia game, I think. Right. Right after the Georgia game. He said, yeah, he did that. That, that was the one this week. And yeah. then like a couple weeks ago, he was talking about, um, I think it was about fans and not not really appreciating and showing support of these guys if they don't blow out a team by like 30 or whatever. You know, it's easy to get spoiled if you're an Alabama football fan. You know, it, I mean, it's hard to hard to, to recognize that it's not always going to go every, you know, 100% the way you want it because they're so used to seeing it 100% the way they want it, right? So – I mean, I don't remember. I mean, they've been so good. It's a dynasty unparalleled in the history of college football, what Alabama has done in Nick Saban's era. It's just remarkable. They're number one at some point of the season every single year. First, middle, last, at at the very end, holding a trophy. They're number one at some point of every season, and they're rarely far off of that. Yeah, I mean, I of recent memory, I can't remember a year where they had more than I mean, even two losses. Yeah, I think they went nine and three one year in this in this era, and they missed the college football. I want to say 2019, perhaps nine and three, and missed the playoff that year. And they missed it one other year early on. Uh, but yeah, they but they were probably preseason number one that year, <laughs> and yeah. just and just you know had a problem and didn't get there. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I wanted to go back to to you and kind of your career, but I mean, what was it like for you to? to be a pioneer in, in this industry. And I mean, obviously it's like you and Joe Lenardi are the OGs of, of what you guys do. I mean, is that, is that something that you think about from time to time? Just be like, wow, I, I, I was one of the people that really started this, this whole movement of, of bracketology and, and, and bold predictions and, and everything like that. Usually I only think about it when it comes up, you know, um, or when we start talking about my career uh, as a whole. So in, in settings like this, where I'm being interviewed um, about, you know, my, my lifespan or as a sports media person, that, does that kind of thing come up? Uh, you know, maybe when I get around to retiring, although I don't really want to retire, I'm having too much fun. Um, but maybe when I get around to retiring, I'll think about it more, but uh, it's, it's really kind of weird. You know, it's Joe and I started this, uh, so many years ago. Well, I mean, I got to give Joe credit. He was, he started the year before I did, um, that, uh, you know, that it would blossom into what it is, you know, because I mean, we're different. Joe and I are different. Um, like Joe's not really a numbers guy, but he knows how to use the numbers. Um, but, uh, and I'm, I did all my own calculations and stuff. So I, I'm really absorbed in the process of the numbers. Uh, but it's, it's funny because we, we did this for so long and now so many people do it. Um, and it's, it's fun. It's, it's weird to think that somebody wants to be us, you know, it's like, why would anybody want to be me? Um, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that want to get into this, uh, and into sports analytics in general, which is now, um, 
huge in all sports. I mean, you know, I do football and basketball, but you know, the NBA, uh, major league baseball was first with Bill James uh, and, and his saber metrics and all of that. I mean, baseball really lends itself to this sort of thing, but football, basketball, hockey, whatever sport you're in now, now there's a career path for just general sports analytics uh, guys like uh, Ken Pomeroy and, and Jeff Sagarin, who's been doing it forever. Um, and, you know, Ken Pomeroy at some point was probably influenced or inspired by uh, Jeff Sagarin. Uh, you know, the guys like that are inspiring a new generation of people to get into sports analytics. And I, I'm, I had very little to do with the growth of that industry, but I am pleased to see the growth of that industry. And if I were going to college now, you know, the, the kid that I was would totally be involved in sports analytics. I would I would get into that for sure uh, if that was a thing, but it wasn't when I was going to school. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at – I remember seeing – it was on Twitter. It was pretty funny. Uh, the Mets posted something on, like, Job Indeed or one of those things about um, having a sports analytics position opening. And it says no sports knowledge required. Yeah. I but mean, you know what? You should have sports knowledge. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe the Mets don't care, <laughs> but they probably should. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it helps to have sports knowledge because I, the thing about analytics is they can't answer everything. And so if you're just all wrapped up in the numbers and you can't think about the game, then I think that you're missing the boat and, and you're, you're missing a key factor in interpreting those numbers. And baseball has suffered for it in some ways. Analytics has taken away the sacrifice bunt. Um, it's taken away the hit and run. Uh, it's taken away stolen bases, you know, because those aren't, I mean, obviously those things are not completely gone and NL pitchers are going to sacrifice bunt a lot, but you know, that those, those things are minimized. Just putting the ball in play is no longer valued. If you can't put it over the fence, the analytics guys are going to say that was a waste of bat you're better off striking out than hitting a single. And I, I, I don't get that. I'll never get that. And I'm, you know, baseball was my first love. My, my job is football and basketball. And I love those too, but baseball was my first love. And it bothers me to see the game change the way it has. It's not as exciting of a product when the ball is hardly, when the only time the ball is put in play is when nobody can catch it. And that's the goal. You know, that's obviously, that's not the only time it happens, but that's the goal to put the ball in play where nobody can catch it. That to me, that that's boring baseball. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a Yankees fan and I mean, we've kind of leaned into that whole thing with, I mean, we got Joey Gallo and Giancarlo and Aaron judge who struck out 300 times a freaking year. Yeah. But, but hit four more, more than half a season than Tony Gwynn struck out in his entire career. There's no place for Tony Gwynn in today's baseball. Mm-hmm. And that means today's baseball is wrong. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, nowadays he would be like, I mean, I don't even, because you got, you got guys like Aaron Judge hitting leadoff. Yeah. It's yeah. the weirdest. Like, yeah. even yeah. when I was introduced to baseball, gosh, that was like 2005-ish. I mean, that was kind of unheard of. And then in recent, the past like few years, really, we've seen all this, all this change and I personally well, it's because setting the table is no longer valuable, right? And that's what the leadoff guy was supposed to do, was set the table for the big hitters. Now they just put big hitters up there. Yeah, I mean, but then you look at some teams who have all those big power hitters and and they suck. So, 
<laughs> it's like, come on, guys. But um, that's beside the point. We're getting off. A little Sorry. <laughs> hey, we're good. All good. Um, but yeah, I mean, sports analytics is something that interests me. Obviously, I'm not good with numbers. Um, I'm better with language. But uh, I mean, how hard was that for you to to sit down and actually I mean, do those calculations and, and everything like that. Like, that's something that fascinates me that you'd even have the, the mental capacity to do that because that, that's something I couldn't even dream about. Well, my brain's wired that way. Like I said, I mean, I was a math guy in high school. Like, I was a state champion in Illinois in math in high school. <laughs> so, you know, I was, and I always had an interest in computers. So putting the numbers together for me is the easy part. The hard part is the fact that the numbers don't dictate so there's a, there's a part of the process, an important part of the process, and a big part of the process. It's subjective. So it's a, the basketball and football, same way. There's, it's a subjective process guided by objective data. Now, in football, they have less data, less reliable data, and in part because the schedules are short and there aren't as many teams. As you do in basketball, you've got some pretty good data to work with. But still, you have to subjectively analyze this data because it's not going to tell you everything. And, and it's the subjective part that that's the art of trying to do a bracket, right? Is, you know, there's a 10 person committee out there watching as many games as they can, oftentimes in person. And I'm some guy with a couple of kids at home and a wife and a television. And, you know, I'm going to watch when I can, but I can't watch everybody all the time like them. So I'm hamstrung in the subjective part and that I don't get to see as much as a 10 person committee does, but you know, I could see what I can. I try and see everybody at least once that's relevant. And uh, it's a, uh, but it's that subjective part that's important. And if all you are is a numbers guy and you can't do the subjective part, then you're missing the boat. And that's true of bracketology, but it's also what we just talked about with the baseball analytics, which is why to me, some knowledge of the game is important. If you're going to do analytics, you should know something about the sport so that you can subjectively analyze the numbers and not just be ruled by the numbers. You know, I'm as big a numbers guy as, I, as there is, but the numbers don't rule me. I, I want to know how to interpret them. Otherwise, I, I feel like I'm just spitting in the wind. Yeah, I feel like you should be at, at least a fan. I mean, I don't know why if you had no interest in, in sports at all, and then you're like, hey, well, this job pays good, and I like numbers, so I'll do this, you know? Right. Because I no, think you have to be you have to be somewhat invested in the sport or willing to get invested mm-hmm. in the sport. Um, I think in order to properly do that job. I think I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like sometimes the analytics and and everything takes away from, I mean, the players themselves. The like, like what they actually bring to the table and and something that you can't measure. Um, I mean, take someone like like Grady Eifert for example. I mean, before. <laughs> Like he bring he brought so much to, to those Purdue teams that yep. might not show up in the analytics. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, know. I don't know the numbers for that one, so I might be off. But I mean, that's- no, no, no. It, he's a really good example uh, of that. I mean, Grady, Grady was a guy who did a lot of the dirty work, you know. And really, we've always had it seems like a guy like that on this on our better teams. We've always had a guy like that. So uh, Grady was a guy like that. Of course, Brian Cardinal, you know, Chris Kramer was a guy like that. Uh, and on this team, it's Mason Gillis. You know, Mason Gillis is willing to do but what Mason Gillis does better than anybody else on this team is make the right play at the time that it needs to be made. And we saw it the other night in the Iowa game. Just go in and get that jump ball. 
that that changed the game at the end. It, it stemmed their momentum. It gave us a possession. We got the lead back to four because we got the ball back. And th- they had a chance to come down and take the lead with that possession. And Mason got us the ball back. And plays like that are so important. And Mason Gillis has a knack for being in the right place at the right time. And you can't teach that. He probably couldn't even tell you how he does it. I mean, it's, it's he just has a knack for being in the right place at the right time. And every good team has somebody like that on their team. And for this Purdue team, it's Mason Gillis. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's obviously, it goes without, without saying, but you can't measure that at all. No, I, yeah, there's no analytics for that. I no. mean, even like someone like Ivy, who brings that added, that added element to your team, or someone like Travion Williams, who's really good at passing from the post, something that we really haven't seen at Purdue and Nobody has seen Travion Williams passing from the post. Uh, He's a unique guy in his ability to do that. You rarely see a post guy anywhere, not just Purdue, with that level of passing ability and court awareness. It's uh, it's almost like he grew up a a guard. (laughs) It grew into a uh, it grew into a center's body, and I don't know, maybe he did, but uh, that's uh, yeah, that's innate. And yeah, you can't teach that, and it's hard to measure except on the assist count. Yeah, I mean that's that's what Anthony that's what happened to Anthony Davis. Like he was like six one or six two um, early in his high school career, and then he <laughs> boomed up to what seven feet now. So he has yeah. all those guard skills. But yeah. I mean, Brad Miller was like that too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Brad Miller started as a guard in high school and grew a lot in high school. And I don't know if you have you of course probably heard of Jim Rowinski. You're not nearly old enough to have seen him play, but Jim Rowinski was recruited as a guard out of New York and uh, injured himself and ended up redshirting a year and grew like five inches after he got to Purdue and bulked up uh, and ended up being a six, nine center. Uh, that was massive. He was built like a football player and uh, ended up being the, the MVP of the big 10 in 1984. Uh, the, the single best coaching job any coach has ever done in the big 10. Gene Cady took that team that was picked for ninth and deserved to be picked for ninth and won the league that year. That was remarkable. And Jim Rowinski was the MVP of the league uh, in that season. And, uh, but he came to Purdue as a guard. Mm, that's crazy. But, I mean, getting back to the point is, I mean, you can't – there's a lot of things you can't measure with analytics. And um, I feel like that's – I mean, we've, we've been talking about it, but I feel like that's what's getting lost. Actually, the best analytics people are going to know that. Yeah. They're going to know that you can't measure everything. And – they're going to, they're going to understand that there are just some things you have to, you just have to know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if analytics, any analytics person that tells you that they can answer everything with numbers probably is not your analytics person. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously you, you've, you've been on this from the jump, but um, did you have to realize that? Is that something that you thought about or was it something you didn't really think about until, I mean, recent years where we've kind of seen it, it's, it's become more apparent. I don't know that I've ever thought about it any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the bracket stuff has always been a subjective process and I've always known it's a subjective process, but that's not really the kind of deep dive analytics that you see in sports these days. I mean, the, the net is simply a ranking system. It's not like the, the selection committee has that and all of these other analytics that are just using numbers to evaluate these teams. So, you know, I, I guess I've always, the processes I've been a part of have always been that way, but it's always made sense to me as well. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I ever 
I don't remember drawing that conclusion specifically for all analytics, but it just makes sense to me that it has to be that way. Not everything can be answered with numbers. Mm -hmm. And more the broad scope of, of, the, of this industry. I mean, how has it changed? Um, just in, I mean, the time that you've been in, it's changed dramatically, but um, is there anything in particular that, that you look at and you're like, wow, this is really, I mean, this is a complete 180 from, I mean, not, not necessarily when you started, but maybe the last like 10 years or so. Well, I mean, the biggest change, positive change, I believe is technology, you know, because everything can now be done faster. You have access to information. Um, you don't necessarily need the media guide anymore, a printed media guide anymore. Everything's online. You can look stuff up pretty easily. Uh, so access to information, uh, at least from a technical perspective, is better. On the other hand, access to players and coaches and, and that sort of thing is worse. Uh, that, it varies from school to school. Uh, but, you know, the ability to get the conversations, especially the, for the for the guys that are around the program a lot or the guys that, you know, like for if you're covering Purdue or IU, the Indianapolis writers, you know, the people in that role, I'm not speaking about Purdue and IU specifically, but for the people in that role where you're around a program, but maybe not every day, but perhaps once a week, you know, trying to, to get access to players uh, and coaches to get information you need is, is difficult. The beat guys that are around a lot usually have, you know, pretty decent access um, still. Uh, but some schools, no, some schools, even the beat guys uh, don't have very good access to the players and coaches. And it usually depends on the level of paranoia uh, in, at the, either the head coach or um, SID level. And that level of paranoia usually comes from either them getting what they feel like is burned before or somebody they know getting burned before. Mm, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, is there going to do you see anything that's maybe on the horizon that people aren't aren't talking about a lot? That's that's really going to revolution revolutionize is that a word it is now <laughs> say it with confidence dub and it's a word <laughs> uh, something that will that will change the game even further um in sports media going forward i always say that when we're in the media we get to make up words it's, we have a license to make up words <laughs> um no i haven't got anything off the top of my head hmm. um that i think is is going to revolutionize communication i mean it seems like there's something new every year right now everything is video you know, podcasts, when they first started, were all audio. Now they're all video, right? So video has changed uh, the, the easy access to video. And there'll probably be something new that, you know, I, I, I guess I'm a techie. I should be more in tune with stuff like that. But it seems like whatever advances we're going to have, it, it's going to be due to advances in technology. I mean, you're someone that's, that's really taking advantage of that, though. I mean, you're not necessarily, I mean, in the CBS Sports office, um, you can do things remote. You can make appearances yep. on shows. You can do all your work from your house. I, I can, yeah. Although I really enjoy being in the studio. I mean, I, I love, I'm energized by being in the studio. Uh, as, you know, when I'm out there in March uh, and in February for the NCAA bracket show, um, I'm, I'm really energized by that. But And, and we didn't have that last year, so I, I really missed that. But yeah, I've been working at home since 2002. And, uh, you know, now everybody works at home because of the pandemic or and some people are just now starting to go back. And, and that's something that, you know, maybe end up being more permanent, you know, is that people are starting to work from home more. I actually miss being in an office every once in a while and the camaraderie of the people that I work with, 
Um, and there's just a certain energy level of being around the people you work with. that's different when you work at home that you miss out on. And I used to work in downtown Chicago and Mm -hmm. I miss, while I don't miss a commute to and from the city, I miss the energy of downtown Chicago. And, uh, so, you know, but that's, that's a trade-off. I I've got a great job and certainly if that's all I can complain about that, I'm not going to, I got nothing (laughs) to complain about. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why I just thought of this, but I was thinking of that old uh, "This Is ESPN" commercial with with John Clayton um, when he was when he was sitting there asking for his mom for noodles after he did the Sports Center hit. You remember that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I haven't seen that forever though. I know, I don't know what happened. I think he got laid off by ESPN, but I don't, yeah, know. I, I don't know what I, I don't know what happened to John. But yeah, ESPN has laid off a lot of people, mm-hmm. and that's you know that's something in our industry that you see a lot of people losing jobs, not just because of the pandemic, but because places got so big and there's so much information out there and so much competition out there now that, that people have, that, that, you know, some of the uh, bigger places like ESPN have not been able to keep their, their staff. Uh, They've had to let some go. They've had like three big rounds of layoffs, I think. And some really good people in our business uh, have been let go at various places and they've latched on somewhere else. And, you know, the athletics sprung up out of, you know, in large part due to ESPN's problems and problems in other places, there was a need that was not being met anymore. And the athletic joined it. And the athletic, of course, started right away as a, as a for-profit organization. And it's a, a subscription service. And, you know, a lot of media has been reluctant to go that route. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen numbers. I, I have no way to know how well that's working for the athletic, but they're still here. Mm-hmm. So uh, it must be working uh, pretty well at some level. Yeah. I, I was just talking to Derek Schultz about this the other day on the show. So shout out to him. Uh, I don't know if you guys have met. <coughs> I've been on his show. Uh, I don't know that I've met him personally. I don't remember that, but I, I've been on his show. Mm, he's a man. Uh, we were talking about how, I mean, everything's going to go. Basically, you own your own stuff, and then, I mean, you kind of do that uh, that freelance type work, and I mean that's kind of what what you've been doing to an extent. Up until 2011, I, that's exactly what I was doing. Yeah, uh, you know, for, for the last 10 years, it's been everything <coughs> I do is is CBS. I don't do any freelance stuff anymore. I don't even think I'm allowed to. Um, well, okay, that's not entirely true. Like I could do some, I can do radio and television stuff you know for somebody else and and i can get paid for those things um but the uh, i don't you know really get paid very much for for those things but uh there's just a stipulation that they have to identify me as being with cbs so that shuts a lot of doors right i used to do big 10 network and they didn't used to have a problem with it but they're owned by fox and then fox at some point said you know what we're gonna get our own guy and don't use him anymore so now i don't do anything for btn which yeah i miss because i love those guys um but uh uh, but I understand that's just the nature of the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ESPN, um, ESPN was weird about that. They weren't letting people go on Pat McAfee's show for a while there, and I still don't know if they are. Um, but I mean, they 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 cut that off like like right then and there because they they knew that Pat McAfee was going to take take some of their viewers away from oh well. regular programs. Yeah, I mean, for you know, my bosses see anything I do on radio and TV is that's promotion, mm-hmm. you know? So um, they don't have a problem with me doing it as long as I'm identified as CBS, because of course that's the promotion. Yeah. hundred um, percent. 
I mean, is there any advice that you'd give to someone that's that's trying to get into sports media or, or sports analytics, anything under that umbrella, or just, I mean, just getting their foot in the door and just now starting? You mean besides the computer science degree? Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the thing that really worked for me is I was building my, um, I guess, brand, uh, although I didn't think of it that way at the time, um, was that I, I built a network. Uh, I said yes to any semi-reasonable request. And I still do that. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, you get some college radio station wants to interview you, you know, about the bracket because their team's in it. Sure, no problem. You know, just say yes to people, do things that you can reasonably do um, and build a network that way and be someone who is, is willing to help. And then people like you and they'll come back to you because they know that you're willing to help. So I, I just kept walking through open doors. If someone had opened a door for me, I'd say, yeah, sure, I'll try that. Yeah, sure, I'll try that. Or sure, I'll talk to you or whatever. Share your knowledge. Um, but of course, you know, if you're trying to break in, it's the walk through the open doors part, you know, just and build your network. Um, and then it's all the stuff you learned in kindergarten, right? Be nice to people, follow through, you know, don't blow anybody off. Don't be mean to people. You know, it's, you know, if you just, there's a lot to be gained from just being a good accountable person and saying yes to, to reasonable requests. Yeah. That's something that's gone completely out the door uh, recently, but I really appreciate you saying that. Cause I mean, that's something that I, I mean, I thought about subconsciously, I guess, but I mean, in our, in this industry, there is a lot of like competition and like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to give you that, that limelight or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to, well, and I want to say one more thing specifically about writing. I have found that the best writers are big readers. Mm. So if you want to be a sports writer, it pays to read just about anything. I think you learn about writing by reading. But in particular, if you want to be a sports writer, read other sports writers. Find some that you like, you know, but just read. Uh, and you learn about style and language and, and questioning people and all of that just from reading how other people have done it. And uh, you, you learn about sentence structure, story structure, you know, things of that nature. You can learn that just by reading what other people do. And you're going to get it in a class somewhere at some point, probably, if you're writing. Mm -hmm. um, but it, writing for media is different than writing, you know, a, uh, a book on, you know, or a story on a book that you read in an English class. You know, it's different. So uh, and then get out there and practice as much as you can. And especially, you know, if you're at a school where you could possibly get some kind of media access, you know, try and get it, try and, try and get access, practice interviewing people. You know, ideally you can practice interviewing people that you want to write about, but practice interviewing anybody uh, so that you get comfortable with asking questions, uh, but especially people that you don't know. Yeah. That's something that since I started the podcast, I, sometimes when I get into conversation with just random people, that's what I start doing is I start like, subconsciously interviewing them and i don't know if they realize it but that's something that i've kind of realized realized lately but um the thing i was gonna say i'm not gonna say his name because i don't want to be disrespectful but there's a guy that asked to come on the show and he has a podcast of his own and um we're both actually i'm not gonna say that because then you know who it is but i mean he was like no i mean thanks for the offer but i don't want to give you any publicity or something like that like i have my own show 
And I was like, but that's the thing is you were going to help. You were going to publicize him too. That's what I'm saying. Like me and me and Rayfeld Davis have gone it. I'm supposed to go on his show soon, but um, it's, that's so much fun. I, I, I did an hour on his show last spring. It was a blast. <laughs> he's the man, but like me and him have, I mean, he's been on my show. What? Three times now I'm going to, I'm about to go on for the second time on his, like, that's what we need in this industry, especially for people who are just kind of starting out and, and finding their way. And I feel like a lot of people aren't like when you, when you get to a certain level, you don't want to give that up and you think that you're all high and mighty and all that stuff. But yeah, I, really it's funny. I just, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. I, I find that of course I get more of those requests now, you know, because more people know me that than they did 10 years ago. So but I, man, I'll talk to anybody, you know, some, some student wants to talk to me about what to do. I, you know, I, I take all those calls. I have sometimes have to work them in, you know, but. But, you know, I, I, I've always been happy to talk to people aspiring to get into this business and uh, flattered actually to be asked. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you coming on here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've that's something that I really appreciate about like guys like you and, and Derek Schultz and I mean I don't want to leave anyone out but I mean I can I can go up and down the list of people that I've had on that really they really I mean embrace the younger generation and want and want to teach want to teach people about I mean I mean how to get into the industry and the intricacies of it and just share stories at the end of the day I mean, the main thing about this business is is relationships, in my opinion. That's something that I never really considered before I started. It's true in every business. It's true. I mean, it's true in every walk of life that you're in, right? Your network is, you, you want to have a good, solid network of people that can help you. But you also want to have a good, solid network of people that you can help. Mm-hmm. And that, you may not personally benefit professionally from helping people, but you never know. You never know. Um, but I, I think that if you're helping people, uh, you have to pass it on. I mean, that's to me, that's just the right thing to do. Um, but then you also want a really good network of people that are your peers and then people that uh, can also help you someday uh, because you never know when you're going to need it. Mm-hmm. And I hope one day that, that I'll be in the position of you or. or you might already be to somebody. <laughs> you don't even know. I mean, they're, you know, you, yeah. may, you may hear from somebody at some point. It's, uh, you know, you've got a relatively successful podcast. So, you know, people who want to start out in podcasting, you may hear from them. I have talked to a few people uh, that are a little younger than me and a couple that are older than me. Uh, but we, I mean, we just like sat there and brainstormed and just talked about podcasting and they asked me questions and I asked them questions about certain things. But um, I hope to one day be able to to be in your position or, or someone like Rayfield Davis or, or anything like that to be able to, to be there for, for younger people who are trying to get into the industry and be someone that, that I, I be someone that someone wants to know my story. Well, you're still pretty young. Your yeah. story is still being written. So, you know, that day will come. Yeah. At the end of the day, but yeah. Um, I know we went over a little bit, but I wanted to <laughs> talk. <I laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I go over at dinner every night. I mean, it's just, it's, I just talk. Sorry. <laughs> hey, all good. I love it. Um, I did want to talk about Purdue. Obviously, we're both Boilermakers. Uh, yeah. 
just now got the number one spot in the, the AP top 25 poll. Um, and then I saw a lot of people saying like, oh, it's, it's not that big a deal. Do you think that Purdue fans are overreacting to it a little bit? Uh, I think it's, it's great for the fans. You know, I, I haven't seen anybody say it's not a big deal at all uh, because it is a big deal. You know, you, when you're the number one team in the country, you know, in terms of, you know, you, you didn't win a national championship this week. Right. And that's obviously the goal. We want to be number one in April and not just number one in December, but being number one in December, I mean, that's news, you know, and the people that you're recruiting see that you're number one and that's, that's not nothing, you know, that helps. So there's an actual tangible benefit to being the number one team in the country, but it's really just a matter of pride for a program that is, you know, a proud program and has been a very successful program for a very long time, uh, but never quite reached that pinnacle. And so, you know, it's another step in the continuing to build of this program that ultimately ends ideally with a national championship more ideally this season with this group of kids, because they're really built to, to make that kind of a run, you know, God forbid everybody stays healthy and all of that. But um, you know, that's, this team is really, um, it's a unique team. I don't remember ever seeing a, not just a Purdue team like this, but anybody like this team that goes this deep and has bigs like we have at Purdue that it's just remarkable. Um, I don't know how you defend these guys. Uh, very well. I mean, I, you know, I always showed that the press could be effective, but that's not going to work all season long. We'll eventually figure it out. So mm. uh, yeah, I, I think you, you know, if you're playing Purdue, you're hoping for a bad shooting day. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, even in the, the game just before the Iowa game, we, we dropped 93 on a team that was pressing us the whole game. Yep. But they were young. They weren't quite at full strength. You know, Iowa, Iowa's press is, is a little, it's a little different and a little more problematic and, and we all, we just didn't handle it well. Um, and, and the, the players just never did really fully react. Uh, and that's what, another thing that made Mason Gillis's play so important was that we were able to get the ball back in the half court. We didn't have to bring it up and, uh, because bringing it up was a big problem at the end of that game. Yeah. hundred percent. Do you remember a time where, I mean, the expectations and, and the hype were so high around, around the Purdue program? Uh, Troy Todd and Everett, that team, 1998 was a number one seed, never got to number one in the polls that year. Um, but that team uh, really had a, a lot of hype around it. That was the year that Danny Manning, Danny and the Miracles, mm -hmm. uh, won the tournament. We didn't quite get to them. We lost to Mitch Richmond and uh, Kansas State in Detroit. And I'll never forget that game. Um, he hit a shot from about the logo uh, that off the glass and went in for a three-pointer. And we're just like, all right, this isn't our day. Yeah. He scored 35 on us. It was just, I'm not sure we'd have gotten by Danny Manning's team, even if we'd have gotten by him because it was their year. Um, and then of course the other team that where the hype was really building uh, was the, the team where Robbie Hummel, you know, tore his knee at Minnesota that year. You know, we were going to be a number one seed. We were a final four favorite. I don't know if we were going to have been a tournament favorite. We wouldn't very likely not have been the overall number one seed, but that was a pretty special team as well. And, uh, and obviously they never even really got the chance. Yeah. I mean, that, that 09 was like 09, 10 ish. I mean, we were, we were pretty loaded, but we weren't as deep as we are. Now. I think it was 2011 because if I'm not mistaken, that was the first year That's true. of the yeah. first four. It might've been 2010. Yeah, you're right. 
year. Thereabouts. Yeah, I don't think it was as early as 09. Yeah, because I think Robbie's senior year, technically, his fifth year was 11-12. Right. Thereabouts. So that would have been 2010. Um, and then, obviously, I can't go without mentioning, um, during your time at Purdue, you were you're in the All-American Marching Band. Yeah. What is what is that like? I'm I'm fascinated by that. Uh, well, it's a lot different now uh, than when I was in band. Um, but the, the practice schedule is basically the same: two hours a day, Monday through Friday. Uh, Saturday game days obviously are very long days um, because you you're on campus all day. You have a practice, and then uh, you know you march to Slater, you play Slater, you do the game, and then you do uh, march back to the, the Hall of Music afterwards. So it's a really long day, and then. You know, if you go away for the for a game, uh, which uh, they don't do as much as they used to, uh, you know, but uh, when I was in band, we could get the drum in the Notre Dame Stadium. Um, but apparently that's a problem now. Um, maybe that's why Brian Kelly left, because the facilities weren't quite up to snuff, you know, because, look, we can't even get a drum in our stadium. So I'm out of here. Um, they uh, but the band experience was terrific. I um, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. Almost all of my friends from Purdue were people that I met from the band. Um, my current wife was in the band with us. Uh, my ex-wife was in the band with us. Um, so, and I have a son down there now, uh, who was in the band as a freshman and hasn't been able to work it out, uh, since then. And I may have another son down there next year. And I haven't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk him into band if he ends up there. Uh, but you know, so band, uh, has been a big part of my family. Um, but the, the band experience is great. You're an ambassador for the university everywhere you go. Um, that the, you know, people gravitate to the golden girl and the drum. Uh, but it's just, it's really cool to be part of the football atmosphere on game day uh, in a way that really nobody else gets to do, you know, you're on the field. Um, you know, obviously when they're not playing, you're actually on the field, but sometimes you're on the sidelines. I remember my freshman year, I think it was against Notre Dame. I want to say Steve Bryant caught a pass in the corner of the end zone. I was standing on um, waiting to go on the field for post game. And I was getting ready to jump on him, but then I looked and I saw all these 300 pound guys running at me. So I got out of the way, but uh, you know, it's, it's being able to, to experience the, 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 the game day atmosphere up close and be a part of the game day atmosphere. That was really uh, attractive to me. When I came to Purdue, I, I would never had any dreams of being an athlete. I was built like a yard marker. So I, you know, I was never going to be an athlete, but I always, I would go to the games as a, as a kid and I wanted to be in the band. That was my attraction to Purdue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's something that people might not – I mean, they realize it when they're in the stadium, but, I mean, you guys are an integral part of the game day experience for the, the fans, coaches, I mean, players, all that. I mean, yeah, that's, that's one of the – It definitely is. I mean, now they've got the Jumbotron blaring music all the time when we could be playing, but uh, <laughs> but we still get our shots in. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, and then my last question for you is, I mean, how do how did the athletics back then compare to the – to the athletics of today? Oh, gosh. Well, athletes are different. I mean, they're so much bigger, stronger, whatever sport you're in. Bigger, stronger, faster, better conditioned. Um, the, the training uh, for athletics has gotten really just remarkable how, how good these athletes are. It's to the point where it's hard to compare errors, right? Because you compare this, you know, like our basketball players to 20 years ago basketball players. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just hard because the athleticism, the level of athleticism is so different. Jaden Ivey is already kind of a freak of nature in terms of his athleticism. You put him back 20 years ago with those guys. Nobody could have, 
nobody could keep up with a guy like Jaden Ivey back then, but they didn't make guys like Jaden yeah. Ivey back then, you know? So, so that is really the, the biggest change. Um, the facilities, you know, Mackey arena is still Mackey arena mm-hmm. and, you know, they've redone it and made the concourses nicer uh, and some of the seating areas nicer, but there's no other environment that I've been in that's like Mackey arena. And when it comes to volume, I've only been to one other gym where the volume, uh, you know, arguably matches, Mackey Arena, and that's Fog Allen at Kansas. That's a tremendous old barn. That that place is lovely. Mackey Arena, you have 14,000 people in there breathing, and it's loud because everything echoes off the metal roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when they move the student section down, like when I was a student, our seats were the upper ring of the arena, like the top, oh, 10 rows, all the way around the arena with students. And now they've got the students right down there on the floor, and it makes life miserable for the opposing team and, you know, you can hardly run a timeout because it's just so loud in there. And, uh, and that has been, that's been a huge change and a, and a big boost to what is a great home court advantage anyway. But I, I, there's, there are a few places that have a home court advantage as good as Mackey Arena. That was true when I was in school. It's even better now. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I don't think you were there for the Iowa game, but it was, I was not. It was jumping in there. It was crazy. You know, I can't, I haven't had a chance to get back. I, you know, I was at the Oregon state game sitting in the stands uh, for that one. And uh, you know, when the band hit the fanfare for the first time, I got emotional because that was my first time in the stadium in two years. Mm. Uh, And I haven't been back to Mackey yet. And, uh, and I can't wait to get back there. I don't know when it's going to be yet, but I can't wait to get back to Mackey. Yeah. I, I, I was fortunate enough to cover all the games, all the home games last year when there's no fans. Um, and they were like pumping in crowd noise, and it was, it was ridiculous. It, I, I saw an NCAA tournament game there, you know, basically yeah. in front of fe- friends and family, mm-hmm. and uh, that was just that was surreal. I mean, even though Purdue wasn't playing, and you wouldn't expect it to be as loud anyway, but it, it was it was like walking into a ghost town. It was very odd. Mm, but yeah, I mean, we're we're back now, and I mean that place is j- jumping like I've never seen it. You so. can hear it on the TV. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. Um, but, I mean, like I said, we went over. So, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and, and being open and honest and, and being real on the, on, on the show. Um, I mean, all, all the best to you. And um, I'm going to continue to be a fan of your work. And I just really appreciate you coming on. I, I'm really looking forward to doing a bracket on Friday and hoping we don't screw it up on Thursday and I can make Purdue the number one overall seed in my bracket. Uh, yeah. So, go Boilers. <laughs> at the rack, a place we don't play well. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I hope we can uh, pull it out Thursday and I'm looking forward to putting them in the bracket on Friday. And, and thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, if you ever want to do this again, just reach out. Of course, hundred percent. Thank you so much.